ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello and welcome to The World Today. It is Thursday the 22nd of February. I'm Sally Sara coming to you from Gadigal Land in Sydney. Today, wine growers in South Australia's Riverland say wholesale grape prices have fallen to the lowest levels in decades. And bats in backyards. Citizen scientists help to uncover how these creatures could save farmers millions of dollars. Insectivorous bats provide um, natural pest control services worth $63.3 million annually, which is huge. So they're really important within our ecosystems, but they have a, a huge benefit for our primary producers as well. First today, the new Qantas CEO, Vanessa Hudson, has delivered the company's profit results for the first time after the departure of former boss Alan Joyce. Half-year profits fell by 13%, but Ms Hudson is promising improved service as she works to rebuild the airline's reputation, which was significantly damaged during Mr Joyce's term. Our senior business correspondent Peter Ryan caught up with Ms Hudson at a special event at Sydney Airport this morning. Well, Sally, I'm here at Qantas Hangar 96 at Sydney Domestic Airport for a media briefing that underscores the image workover Qantas wants to achieve. Now, Qantas media operatives have been slaving for weeks to ensure a no-frills event, certainly no vestiges of former CEO Alan Joyce. So instead of the traditional auditorium at Qantas headquarters where Mr Joyce once held presidential-style media conferences, a results briefing in a noisy aircraft hangar, the backdrop one of the new A220s being showcased by Qantas. All to demonstrate Ms Hudson is a CEO at the front line, in touch with still fragile Qantas staff and the travelling public. And Vanessa Hudson had some cautious good news, an after-tax profit on the half year of $869 million, but that's down 13% as airfares get lower in the post-COVID world as capacity normalises. So how much pressure is Vanessa Hudson under to put her own stamp on Qantas? We spoke on the sidelines of this morning's briefing. I think that I look at it as an opportunity. I've spent a lot of time listening to our people and talking to them about what's working and what's not, and that's basically shaped me and my management team's focus on where do we need to invest for them, but where do we also need to invest for the customer. But what sort of pressure are you under to effectively become the brand or face of Qantas like your predecessor, Alan Joyce? The way I see it is actually about, you know, stepping into a role as a CEO. Your job is accountable to customers, it's accountable to your people and it's also accountable to shareholders. And there's a simple context that I provide which is I'm spending more time listening, less time talking, but I'm also spending more time acting and less time promising. Speaking of trust and listening, where are you at with compensation for Qantas staff unlawfully sacked at the height of the pandemic? So that is something that I've been personally involved with, um, which is mediation um, with the, the union. I have said that my focus is to get a reasonable and fair settlement as quickly as possible, because that's the fastest way um, the former employees will get their compensation. Unfortunately, uh, we haven't been able to, to reach a settlement. You're also dealing with the ACCC allegations that Qantas sold fares for flights that didn't exist. Qantas is defending this, but could this matter end up being settled? The allegations was at a period of time where coming out of COVID, things were very disrupted. 
and we've actually openly said we didn't get everything right. I do understand that for Qantas to regain trust that we need this matter behind us, but it is subject to a court process and we're working through that. What about the cancellations and delays that we saw at the height of the pandemic, a very, very unusual time, but are you now confident that you're over that period? So we have been working really, really hard to improve our operational reliability across Qantas and Jetstar, and also um, reducing cancellations. And we have seen the results. Qantas Domestic and Jetstar have seen improvements in on-time performance um, increase month on month in the last three months. And we've also seen cancellations drop um, significantly. This is going to be something that we focus on relentlessly. The one thing that I would say, though, is that there are going to be things that are outside our control that will impact um, on on-time performance. Things like weather events, thunderstorms, um, air traffic control issues. And in those moments, we are going to make sure that we keep customers informed and we actually make sure that they get away as quickly as possible. That's Qantas CEO Vanessa Hudson speaking to our senior business correspondent, Peter Ryan. It's been almost three weeks since Ballarat woman Samantha Murphy disappeared while out for a Sunday morning run. Now, locals are stepping up their efforts to find the mother of three by organising a mega community search this Saturday to keep the case in the spotlight. They're calling on experts from around the country to bring their know-how to help Samantha Murphy's family get some answers. Rachel Mealy reports. Chloe Riz doesn't want to sit back and wait. She and other members of the Ballarat community feel compelled to get involved. When I saw Sam's daughter on the media, myself and the group all agree that we can't just give up when there's someone's children out there yearning for their mum. The group is calling on others to join a search party which will head out on Saturday. When the media started to fade down about Samantha, we got concerned that people had given up looking and we thought that we really need to bring it back into the spotlight so people don't give up, so we do get the numbers. Victoria Police have announced they've brought fresh eyes to their own ranks in the search for Samantha Murphy. The Missing Persons Investigation Unit has called in experienced detectives from several units across Crime Command and Counterterrorism who might have experience in complex investigations. Chloe Riz wants expert searchers and trackers from around the country to heed the call and join the community search. We're actually doing a bit of a call out at the moment for any experienced bushmen, horsemen, prospectors, anyone that has hunters, has actual experience in deep, thick forests. That would be amazing to get them on board. Um, but in general, we're going to try to have a large-scale search with the community and hopefully get some answers for Samantha's family. Jake Kasser is one of those who's answered the call. He's a bushcraft teacher and tracker from the New South Wales Central Coast. I'm going to do my best to pretty much leave no stone unturned. I'm going to go into all the remote areas and, um, and I'll cover a fair bit of ground in, in 12 or 15 hours a day and, um, and I'll probably spend some of the time throughout the night out there as well. But my other objective is to you know, help give some survival, uh, some tracking tips to uh, some of the some of the locals here that might help them in their searches and I'll continue to liaise with them even when I go back home. Jake Kasser says he was involved in the search for missing three-year-old William Tyrrell on the New South Wales mid-north coast. I was involved in the search for William Tyrrell. Uh, myself and some others in the community camped down at the showground uh, for I think it was about two weeks 
and, um, and, and searched that whole area vigorously. He remains hopeful that if Samantha Murphy is lost or injured, she can be found. Now, someone can go about a month without food, uh, but if they've got access to water, and I believe you've had a little bit of rain here, uh, if they've got access to water and, and reasonable shelter, then they can go for quite a long time. So I'm not definitely saying Samantha is out there in the bush, but if she is, we're going to do everything in our power to, to see if we can find her. Anna works in a bookstore in Ballarat. She says the community is feeling distressed for Samantha Murphy's family. Well, amongst staff and amongst customers, we're concerned. Um, you know, we're hopeful that she'll be found and she'll be OK. I have been talking to customers and, for example, when going through the crime fiction section, I had one lady who said, I can't read anything that involves a, a missing woman because I'm just... It's, you know, weighing on me so heavily that this lady has gone missing. So it is affecting people and we are still talking about it and we just, we want her back. We want her back safe for her family. She says the more help, the better. If I could make myself useful and not be in the way, I would certainly do that wherever it's possible. I mean, we want answers. We want her home safely. That's Ballarat local Anna ending that report from Rachel Mealy. Well, to South Australia now, and grape growers in Australia's biggest wine region say they've been left frustrated after an overnight crisis meeting. More than 150 industry members attended the gathering at Barmra in South Australia's Riverland. The region is facing low grape prices not seen since the 1970s, and growers say that they need help now. Angus Randall reports. Outside the Barmra football club rooms on the shore of Lake Bonnie, Riverland grape grower Maria Cialis says the situation is dire. We can't afford to keep doing what we're doing. We don't want to just walk off our land. We want to do what we do and we do it well. We just want to get paid what we should get paid because I don't think that they understand that there's people that can't afford to put food on the table at the moment. Someone needs to step up and say I'm here to help. The Riverland, three hours northeast of Adelaide, was slammed by floods two summers ago, and the Chinese government's tariffs on red wine have hit grape growers hard. There's an issue with oversupply of grapes and historically low prices. Some grape growers are selling their grapes at a loss of more than 50%. Maria Cialis hoped the meeting would be a chance to explain the situation to those in power. It was nice to hear what other people felt. It was nice for us to have that opportunity to, to say what we thought. It pretty much fell on deaf ears today. We, we were here for nearly two hours. We all poured our hearts out and we were talking to the wrong people. When are we going to get that meeting with the right people? The SA Premier and Primary Industries Minister did not attend as it's a parliament sitting week. And a spokesperson for Federal Agriculture Minister Murray Watt says he was not invited. The regional industry body Riverland Wine says the meeting was intended for growers, not politicians. Grower Engagement Officer Charles Matheson says the minister needs to see the situation for himself. I think it's incredibly important. The minister has been here before in the floods. He now needs to see the floods of wine. Yanni Katuzis is a grape grower and winemaker. He's come out of the meeting feeling positive. It's amazing that we all did get together and have a voice. And I think it's really important to, to do this, not just now, but also for the future too. Seems like it's going to be a positive outlook to this as well. It seems like we do we will have support from government, from parliament as well. So it does seem promising that we do have this support rather than you know farmers going with their tractors to uh, the streets and and trying to voice their concerns. Now we're having people who are important 
not important, but people who can help us achieve uh, the results that we're looking for. He says growers put forward several solutions, including a price floor for grapes, help for those who want to exit the industry and immediate funding to help growers unable to pay their bills. Um, people's overdrafts are basically going to the highest limits. So I think getting um, financial funding to you know, give people some ease, give families some ease. I want to stay here, I don't want to leave, I love the Riverland and the last thing I want is for it to be vacant land and nothing here at all. One suggestion is to replace the voluntary industry code of conduct with a mandatory one, which growers hope will improve the balance in bargaining power between growers and businesses. Australian Grape and Wine represents both grape growers and winemakers. CEO Lee McLean attended last night's meeting. He says a mandatory code is unlikely to directly fix the price issues. We think it is really important to have that conversation and if there's a strong enough case to do it, then uh, we, can certainly, we can certainly take that up. But the thing that I'm always cognisant of is that um, when you have issues relating to price, for example, it's very rare that a code of conduct would be able to solve those problems. It's really about commercial practices and commercial dealings uh, and where they can be addressed, then we, we should be looking for ways to address them. Riverland Wine will release more information on proposed solutions for the industry in the next 48 hours. That's Angus Randall and Eliza Berlage with that report. You're listening to The World Today. The legal team for WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange is awaiting a UK High Court decision on whether he'll be extradited to the United States on espionage charges. The US says the publication of classified documents by WikiLeaks endangered the lives of intelligence sources. But Mr Assange's lawyers argue that he is a journalist who should be released. Greg Barnes, SC, is an advisor to the Australian Assange campaign. Well, the, the court has asked for a further written submission, which I think is due on the 3rd of March. So we won't expect a decision, uh, obviously, before the 3rd of March. Uh, you know, this is a complex matter. Uh, when you've had two days of hearing, generally uh, the court will reserve possibly uh, for some weeks and uh, even potentially for a month or two. Uh, it's difficult to know, but it, it is no ordinary extradition case. In what way? What we're dealing with here is uh, the issues of freedom of the press, uh, freedom of speech. We're dealing with potential jail conditions, uh, which would be deleterious to health. And, of course, we're dealing with the issue of the sort of disproportionate penalty that the US justice system would hand out in this particular case. And, of course, at the end of the day, the real issue is whether or not this is a political, these are political charges and therefore exempt from the extradition treaty between the United States and uh, the UK. What about the argument that uh, the WikiLeaks process endangered sources to the US, particularly foreign sources, re revealed their identity and information? Well, as, as Julian's lawyer said, n none of that has been proved. And, in fact, in the, in the Chelsea Manning case, that allegation was put by the US and when it was asked for evidence, it said, well, we don't have any evidence that that was the case. I think you'll also find that the, the Australian Department of Defence had a look at this when Julia Gillard was Prime Minister and again said that there was no evidence 
that anyone had been harmed by the release of information. What happens if Julian Assange is extradited and what happens if he's not extradited? If he is extradited, he will go into the US justice system. Um, He'll be tried in Eastern Virginia. He'll be placed in what we would say are are very severe prison conditions, even though the US has given assurances about that. Those assurances can't be enforced in a court of law. And the real fear, as his wife has said and his family has said, is that uh, he will die. His health has declined markedly. He didn't appear at the hearing in the last two days. The US penal system is notoriously harsh and particularly in the relation to these types of cases. And if he's not extradited, what happens? If he's not extradited, then uh, the, the extradition falls away. He can, he can walk out of Belmarsh Prison because, you know, the, the UK courts have said that the extradition should not go ahead, which of course was the original decision uh, in this case some years ago. Has the Australian government been lobbying hard enough for Julian Assange in, in your view? Well, we've we've certainly been uh, heartened by the fact that the Albanese government has taken up this case and we've had Stephen Smith, the High Commissioner, visit Julian in Belmarsh. We've had uh, representations made by the Prime Minister and also Penny Wong, the Foreign Minister, but they need to go harder. We've now got the Australian Parliament in an 86 to 42 vote reflecting the fact that the Australian community generally wants Assange back home. They want the end of this matter. And so there needs to be a really concerted lobbying effort and a clear message sent the Biden administration that this is putting real strain on the US-Australian alliance. That's Greg Barnes, SC, advisor to the Australian Assange campaign. Education advocates say urgent action is needed to increase the number of Tasmanian students successfully completing Year 12. Currently, only around half of the state's school pupils achieve a Year 12 qualification or equivalent. That's significantly below the national average and the problem is getting worse. As Tasmanians prepare to head to the polls, the state government and opposition are under pressure to come up with reforms. Alexandra Humphreys reports. Over the past decade, Tasmania's state government has been pushing to increase the number of students who successfully finish Year 12 or receive an equivalent qualification. But recent figures released by the Productivity Commission indicate something has gone wrong. Lisa Denny is a workforce demographer. Tasmania's successful school completion rate has actually declined. It's actually dropped five percentage points in a year to 53.1% of all Year 12 prospective students successfully completing not just Year 12, but it also includes a Certificate 3 qualification. Nationally, 76% of students finish Year 12. It tells us that the education system is failing almost half of our young school-aged Tasmanians. Lisa Denny says that's going to have a widespread impact. Tasmania is has an ageing population. Associated with that, um, which people often don't realise, is that we have an ageing workforce. And we already have skill and labour shortages permeating all of our industries, all of our service providers. If we do not have successful completion of school by as many of our Year 11 and 12 students as possible, we are not going to have a future supply of workforce. Michael Rowan is an emeritus professor with the University of South Australia. He believes that these days a Year 12 qualification is a passport to modern society. I think we should be very concerned. There's one big way in which Tasmania's education system differs from other states. Traditionally, students leave their high school at Year 10 and move to another school called a college. There are only eight colleges across the state. 
Over the past few years, in a bid to increase the number of options, all state high schools have been extended to accommodate years 11 and 12. Despite that, completion rates have barely improved. Professor Rowan believes that extending high schools has been an important step, but with the majority of students still choosing to attend colleges, more needs to be done. We've maintained a failing system, to be blunt, in the colleges, and we've put beside it another system. But while most people believe that the failing system is successful, that's where they will go and more than half of them will fail. He thinks big changes must be driven from the top. I'd suggest what, what the leadership should do is say we need schools to be seamless from year 7 to year 12. There should be one principal who is responsible for the success of students from the first day they enrol in high school to the day they graduate at year 12. Pazi Salberg is a professor of educational leadership at the University of Melbourne. The best way to improve attendance is to really try to make a school a place where young people would have a stronger sense of belonging, that they would think that it's their kind of a happy place to be. For many young people, school, uh, especially high school these days, is not that type of place. It's looming as a big task for Tasmania's next government. That report from Alexandra Humphreys. Finally today, they have scary associations for some, but bats may have been unfairly maligned, especially the smaller micro bats, which eat cockroaches, mosquitoes and agricultural pests. The New South Wales government is trying to learn more about them, expanding a program which invites citizen scientists to pay more attention to these secretive creatures. Alison Shaw reports. They're the tiny flying mammals that are elusive and often misunderstood. I feel that the biggest problem is that we've always had a lack of education on these species and their importance to us all. Janine Davies is a member of the Australasian Bat Society and has been involved with bat rescue and education for over a decade. There's many bats within the Shoalhaven. I've seen many in my backyard, down towards the creek, down near the river, down where we have our grey-headed flying fox colony. Uh, you can see the, the microbats flying around um, at dusk. Now the New South Wales government wants to help the community understand how these small animals are having a big impact. Threatened Species Officer Jessica Petery helps run a project called Bats in Backyards. Insectivorous bats provide um, natural pest control services worth $63.3 million annually um, in avoided cotton yield damage to the Australian cotton industry, um, which is huge. So they're really important um, within our ecosystems, but they have a, a huge benefit um, to our primary producers as well. She says the program invites citizen scientists to get involved. For the most part, they use echolocation, um, which is an ultrasonic call, and it's inaudible to human ears. So we send out a sound recorder to landholders and it only records inaudible calls, so the calls that the bats are producing. Um, and so they put it out on their property for five nights um, and after that they'll send it back um, and then we process the calls. And bats are really cool in that they have a, a signature call. Um, so we can use these calls to identify what species is present. But insect-eating bats in New South Wales are in decline. 
um, bat space generally um, is habitat loss from human activity through like urban sprawl um, and climate change. Of the 34 species in the state, 18 are listed as threatened or are thought to be extinct. And scientists say it's vital that we save some of these rare species from extinction. Now in its second year, Bats in Backyards is being pushed further west. We've expanded now into three new regions as well. So the Ningen, Mungandai and Weemala districts. And these are really important areas. Um, they occur a little bit further west and our understanding of bats in these regions is more limited compared with the coastal regions. Bat lover Janine Davies says she hopes the program keeps growing to bring more awareness and appreciation to these silent and secretive little creatures. This project, I believe, is a step in the right direction and I would encourage the involvement of more communities to participate and educate more people and bring to focus the fact that we have these animals in the environment. We need to protect them, not only for their sake, but for the sake of humanity as well. That's bat lover Janine Davies ending that report from Alison Shaw. And that's all from the World Today team. Thanks for your company. I'm Sally Sara. Take care. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily podcast. As the second anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine approaches, Russian soldiers have captured the city of Avdivka. So as the war enters its third year, is there really a chance Ukraine could still win? Today, we speak to a Ukrainian woman in Kyiv about what life looks like now and a military analyst on what to expect next. Look for the ABC News Daily Podcast on the ABC Listen app.